0: Hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Andrew Gumbel of The Guardian. It's October 21st, and you're with the virtual City Club Forum. We're 13 days away from an election that is fraying nerves like no other. Democrats accuse Republicans of cheating through voter suppression, while our president, Donald Trump, shoots back with wild talk of mass voter fraud. All of it is sapping confidence in the system. Our congressional candidates are being pushed away from the center by primaries that reward ideological purity over pragmatism. And our antiquated method of electing presidents is perpetually at risk of producing a winner who lags several million votes behind in the popular vote. Third party candidates are often tagged as spoilers. Think of Ralph Nader in 2000 or Jill Stein in 2016, who only exacerbate the electoral college's inherent weaknesses. But what if there was another way to vote? Some states and localities have implemented ranked choice voting, a system which allows people to order candidates by preference. At least in theory, this eliminates the spoiler problem and favors consensus candidates over ideological firebrands. This year, Maine will be the first state to implement ranked choice voting in a presidential election. We've assembled a group of experts to explain what ranked choice voting is, analyze its benefits and drawbacks, and whether or not it could be implemented in Ohio. Joining us today are Dr. Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at The Ohio State University, Khaled Pitts, Political and Public Relations Strategist at FairVote, Amelia Powers Gardner, Clerk Auditor for the Utah County Government in Utah, and Dr. Tom Sutton, Professor of Political Science and Director at Baldwin Wallace University. As every City Club Forum, you can participate with your questions. Text them to 330 541 5794 330 541 5794 You can also tweet them at the Twitter handle, the City Club. All one word. We'll work in as many as we can. And with that, it's my great pleasure to get everybody talking and begin. And I'd like to start with you, Khaled, um, because Fair Vote has really been in the forefront of advocating ranked choice voting for many years now and has really been you know, the prime force that has made it jurisdictions around the country. So I'd like to ask you, you know, what was the set of problems that Fair Vote looked at that decided that needed a solution and why was Ranked Choice voting the solution that you came up with?
1: Well, thanks, Andrew. And I'd like to thank the City Club of Cleveland for having me here and being able to be a part of this illustrious panel, uh, first off. So you, FairVote's been around for more than three decades working on a broad uh, panoply of election reforms uh, issues and democracy reform issues. Um, uh, we have settled on, uh, from, from voting rights to registration to a number of different things. But as over the decades as we've seen, the one of the major things that we can do to sort of reform our democracy and as bring us to that closer to that more perfect union is ranked choice voting. I think you your opening, you're sort of giving the feeling of the climate right now, electorally. You know, I think the country feels divided. Um, you know, the average Jamal and Jane public uh, person out there just feels politically exhausted. And, you know, they feel exhausted, you know, ideologically, they feel exhausted politically, they, they feel exhausted economically and socially. Particularly lately, they feel very exhausted racially um, and even geographically. And and I think that you know they, the reason they feel exhausted because they feel many people feel like they're living in a ritualistic binary society. Um, but this didn't happen overnight, or because, as some believe, and you allude to, of uh, this current administration, you know this has happened uh, over decades, largely because how uh, we we run elections and who we end up electing, you know, for candidates and elected leaders, and who they actually represent. Or feel beholden to represent, and then the three big problems we've identified with again how we run our elections is one polarization. Um, you know, in, in our current system and the way districts are drawn, uh, if you look at the House level uh, in Congress, you don't have to worry about really about winning the general election. Um, the primary is the biggest thing, and even within that primary, your primary whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. You didn't focus on a small sliver of your base. So you could win your primary with, let's say, 30% of the vote um, and then cruise on till, into the election. And one of the other things that we think how we are electing our, our, our candidates is is, is around the, and ideas and competition. You know, when third party candidates or minority candidates, and when I say minority, I don't mean ethically minority. I mean minority in terms of ideology, Um If they aren't viable, we lose in the free market of ideas, the competition of ideas, which has always made, you know, what distinguishes our country is the competition of ideas. And I think third, because how we sort of elect uh, candidates in our elections, it's negative campaigning. And it's not negative just in the sense of thinking about I'm going to expose something different than me or bad about my other candidate. But it's more in the sense of I'm negative campaigning to depress your vote. Not to encourage people to vote to vote for me, but to press the people who might vote for you. Um, and the three, those are the big three things we sort of feel about that uh, about our current election system that ranked choice voting can solve. Um, with regard to polarization, I mentioned primaries. Primaries aren't going to be the only thing that matters. You've got to govern towards everyone. You got to govern towards everyone. And think about just in the primary sense. You've got from a candidate standpoint, um, you can't just sort of campaign to that small sliver of your base. You've got to expand, you know, who you're talking to. Uh, you know, and that sort of market, again, we, we think about that, is that, that I don't, I can't just win with, in the sense of talking to just a small number of people. I need to be, uh, a ch- uh, speak to everyone in my district or everyone in a sense, more expanded people in my, in my state. You get uh, more of a diversity of thought in that sense, whether you're talking about big issues around guns or healthcare, or the environment, or immigration, and that speaks to ideas and third parties or non-traditional candidates. You know, no longer are those people are going to be the spoiler candidate. They're a, you know, in that sense of feeling, um, they're actually able to get on the debate stage to be part of the conversation. You know, thinking of this more choice for your voice uh, there. And then I think lastly, um, how you campaign. You know, not in the sense of I need to tear down my opponents because. If I want myself to be that second choice or third choice for my opponents, I can't just tear down them or their ideas. It changes how you campaign because it changes your strategy and and who you're speaking to and how you're speaking to about your opponents. And we think that ranked choice voting addresses those three major problems with regard to about the sliver of electorate who decides who's elected and not just who's elected, but how that person governs. Uh, and not just governed to that smaller electorate, or, or being beholden to those that smaller electorates, In a sense, you know, um, you know, interests. Whether you're talking about Democrats or Republicans, um, it brings third parties or uh, non-traditional candidates uh, into the mix in a, in a more fair way. And you have that competition, that free market of ideas. And third, it addresses negative campaigning. Uh, I know we're all tired of seeing those negative ads. Uh, uh, on, on, on TV or on the radio or, or mailers we get, but it changes how we campaign. And we think if ranked choice voting was uh, instituted for how we elect our folks in Congress or state senators or even folks in city council, we would change both how elections are run, who gets elected, and what they're running on.
0: That's very interesting. When you talk about a free market of ideas, you know, my take is that for more than 100 years, you have the two major parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, who have been actively uninterested in a free market of ideas. They want to maintain their duopoly. They've created the system we have largely based on that thought. They don't want other candidates. They don't want to throw things open to the unknown. They want to control the process as much as possible, make sure the candidates they favor win the seats that they're, they're gunning for. So I don't know if you agree with that or not, but when you started out this work and as a practical matter wanted to persuade jurisdictions to try rank choice voting, how much of an obstacle was the traditional party system? Let's talk about the party system. We'll talk about Republicans separate from Democrats a little later. How hard was that? And how did you overcome that obstacle?
1: I think as with any new idea, whether it's how you run elections or an idea of a policy idea, you've got the, to show, you know, you think of, of, of parties or individuals in three camps, you got those who believe, you know, wholeheartedly in democracy and the engagement of ideas and reforms to make us a, a more perfect union. You've got those who might think more strategically in terms of what does it mean for me or the power base I represent. Uh, and then you have those who, uh, let's just say, are, are, need to be brought along, uh, convinced by maybe political wins or their constituents. So it's been a process um, over the last you know, several decades uh, around this convincing those parties and those individuals, um, both on the left and right and libertarians, greens, the whole spectrum of what this means for our democracy. And the more you're seeing, and maybe we'll talk about this a little later, uh, I know Amelia from Utah is there, the more you see it in action um, and you, the more you see how it, best, it betters our democracy, and gets more people uh, and the, the diversity of people engaged in the process. And that's what we want to do. Thinking about this election voting at home, but we want more people engaged in the process. The more people are engaged in the process, the more we elect leaders who are more representative of those people.
0: Right, one thing, I mean, my impression is that when you started out it was easier to start in races where there were nonpartisan candidates, so mayoral races, for example. And that it's only more recently, you know, Maine being the most striking example, where you've managed to branch out and persuade election managers and political leaders to try this out in, in partisan races as well. Is that correct?
1: Well, I would say this: uh, the, uh, they they like to say that you know, the 50 states model in terms of the uh, the laboratory of democracy. Um, and then it gets even more uh, sort of experimental to some degree when you get to cities and locales and some degree much a little bit easier because it's somewhat easier for people to sort of understand what that impact may be directly on them with regard to, you know, local issues. You know, and no politics is more important than you know, what the politics is happening local. So I think you've seen sort of a traditional arc in terms of both policy or, or ideas. It's sort of happening on the local level first. Um, and then sort of bubbling up. But I think with regards to ranked choice voting, I think this election is really going to make a point of this, is that we need to engage in this issue of where the problem is. When New York City, for instance, who will be implementing ranked choice voting next year, when it was first proposed back when um, Franklin Roosevelt was, was, the, um, was governor, he looked at the big issue in New York State being Tammany Hall and, you know, fixing that sort of, corrupt, in a sense, system there. Let's do it in New York state. I think the biggest issue we see that's impeding our democracy and reforming our democracy is Congress. And that's what we'll be seeing, rank- that's what we'll be seeing fair vote and a number of al- allies focusing on congressional fixes. OK.
0: we'll we'll come on to questions about Congress and the nature of Congress a little later. I want to turn now to Amelia Powers Gardner, who runs elections in Utah County, which uh, the county seat is Provo, south of, New- uh, of Salt Lake City. Um, and as I understand it, it's a very red county, you know, we, we often hear these days that it's Democrats who are interested in innovation and expanding ballot access and improving the quality of the vote, but Amelia, you, you know, you have introduced ranked choice voting in an unabashedly Republican state and in an unabashedly Republican county, so tell me, what was it about ranked choice voting that appealed to you, and how did you go about implementing it, and, you know, I'll just frame it by saying that it's not countywide. It's just been in a couple of jurisdictions so far. But tell, tell us about how this came about.
2: So um, I was actually invited to, right after I won my election, and it's funny, you talked about how in some areas the primary matters most. I was a prime example of that. As soon as I won my count, my party's nomination, the Republican party nomination, it was just assumed that I was the next county clerk. And so I hadn't even taken office yet. And I was starting to get invited to come and learn more about things like ranked choice voting. And I attended a conference on ranked choice voting. And a couple of the things really stuck out to me. Number one, uh, they talked about how more minority representation people get elected. Um, And in this case, minority, I am talking about maybe ethnic or in my case, female, I'm the first woman elected to County office in my County in 50 years. And I'm the first woman to ever hold the office of county clerk. We've never had a county commissioner or treasurer or surveyor or assessor or so many of the offices have never been held by women. And I found that very interesting that more people of minorities, particularly of women, were elected under ranked choice voting. And as I started researching ranked choice voting, it became apparent to me that a lot of the reason why is because some Candidates like a women candidates oftentimes aren't as uh, what people perceive to be assertive, just because women naturally tend to be a little less assertive than men. At least that's what it appears to be because we approach things differently. And so what they found is that the women oftentimes were people's second choice. So you'd have maybe a woman running against three men and she's everybody's second choice, uh, but many people's first choice and that was very, I found that very interesting. So as I started looking into it, I was like, well, what are the problems with ranked choice voting? And the problems that were coming forward, to me just really weren't problems. And I found this interesting. It was, well, it's gonna confuse people. So people can, I mean, they know who they like most and who they like second most and third most. I mean, I just didn't buy this argument. And as I started going through the arguments one by one on why ranked choice voting was bad I didn't see it. I didn't see that it was bad at all. And so I said, you know, I think this is a good chance. We started, like you said, with nonpartisan city races and something really stuck out with me for that. I charge the cities when I run their, when I run their elections and we charge them per voter, which means if they run a primary election and a general election, then they're getting charged twice per voter. So I went to the cities and said, you know, if you do a ranked choice voting election, you only have to run one election. So I kind of coined the phrase ranked choice voting is better, faster and cheaper. It's faster because you only have to run one election, which means that your city only has election signs for a short amount of time. It's faster um, in, in that you don't have to spend all this time. I found it being better because like Khalid said, you're not focusing on bashing someone else because if you don't get that, per- if you don't get their support as first vote, you want their second vote. So you actually are focusing on the issues. Not only that, none of the voters feel like they have to vote against anybody. And people are significantly less likely to show up to vote if they're voting against something. They're significantly more likely to vote if they're voting for something. And so um, I felt that was better. So we've got better, faster, and then cheaper. They only have to pay for one election, not two. That's the nonpartisan area. Um, And that's what I found was really interesting as far as implementing it there. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in in this year, the political parties in the state of Utah also used ranked choice voting to select their candidates uh, at their conventions. Both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party statewide utilized ranked choice voting to select their candidates. So we actually have history here in Utah, not only on the nonpartisan city elections, but for both major political parties in their party elections. Um, And once again, this really helped people feel like they weren't voting against somebody. They could vote for who they wanted They could get a true majority. We weren't electing minority candidates through our convention process. And I think that that's probably the biggest win here, you know, in the conservative area, we we don't want to spend a lot of money doing runoff elections because runoff elections are expensive and we like low taxes. And so we want less, less cost, but we also don't want someone with a minority of the vote getting elected. They want to feel like they have more support. So you actually just looking at it from a different angle, um, maybe with on the partisan side, maybe Democrats and Republicans want ranked choice voting for different reasons, but both can see the value in the, in the process.
0: So one thing that interests me is that, you know, Utah is obviously fairly homogeneous um, in terms of party preference. It seems from what you're saying, it's, it's a healthy reminder that when you get away from national politics, that actually, you know, the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of party officials are really actually quite interested in, in, in democratic values and in promoting, you know, access to the vote and making it work. Um, but I'm curious, you know, is it easier to, you know, we're seeing now the of this idea we'll get to a moment, you know, the possibility of expanding it to a state like Ohio. But what I'm interested in is, you know, when you're starting out, um, whether it's easier to start in a nonpartisan context or else in the context of a state where you know the overall party makeup of the state is not really in question. Herb, let me let me ask you as a political scientist, um, do you get the sense that when a new idea like this comes along? that it's easier in these sort of relatively non-contentious contexts? Um, Or do you think it's simply a matter of explaining the idea in an effective way
3: to make everybody understand it's in everybody's interest regardless? Well, it's both, but whenever there's a new idea, the political party leaders, well, especially if they didn't generate the idea. So let's assume it's a a group like Fairvote, group of citizens who are really talking about reform, uh, probably the first lens through which the uh, parties would look at this is, well, do we benefit by this? And and if they make that calculation and say, yes, we benefit, uh, then they might be supporters. But if, in fact, the circumstances changed, they might change their views later on. Uh, I think it's important, as you said, Andrew, that if we start talking about this, and what Amelia said, too, talk about what, what you can accomplish, the values, the objectives, the goals, and all of that, and try to keep that out of a partisan context. And so I oftentimes try to talk about reform in terms of empowering the voter, enhancing the voters' choices. And that argument can be made with respect to redistricting, where so many of our elections are just meaningless because the districts are all rigged you know the candidates choose their voters rather than the voters choosing their candidates Uh, you know that sort of notion and i think one of the nice things about uh uh ranked choice voting is that it makes it more difficult for many of us who when we have our partisan hats on say oh don't vote for the greens or don't vote for this minor party or because you're wasting your vote and so we start shaming people for actually voting for the candidate they most prefer. And one of the things that uh, ranked choice voting does is allow that person to say, no, even I'm, if I'm voting for a candidate who's not gonna come in first or second, I am not wasting my vote. Now, let me tell you just one little story because and, and FairVote has done such a wonderful job, and, and Colin and I were talking briefly about uh, Ann Arbor And I did a little bit more checking, and and FairVote has a wonderful story of uh, of article about what happened in Ann Arbor in the 1970s. And what happened in the 1970s in the city of Ann Arbor, a very liberal city, they had three political parties. Uh, They had Democrats, Republicans, and the Human Rights Party. And in Ann Arbor, and especially after uh, uh, young people were given the vote, the Human Rights Party... Consistently got enough votes that allowed the Republican to be elected mayor with a plurality. And then, in fact, uh, the Democratic Party saw that it was to their advantage to have ranked choice voting. And so they got together with the Human Rights Party and through an initiative of voted reform, they established ranked choice voting. And the Democrats did that because it was in their self-interest, their enlightened self-interest. And the system worked so well because in the first election, and it was only for mayor, it wasn't for anything else, in the first election, uh, the uh, Republican candidate got 49%, the Democratic candidate got 40%, 49-40, and the Human Rights Party candidate got 11%. Well, under the old system, the Republican would have been elected, but Uh, Ranked choice requires that you get a majority. So then they looked at the second place choices of the Human Rights Party uh, voters. And almost unanimously, they preferred the Democrat. So even though, in sort of on the first round, 49 to 40, to 11, it basically turned out to be 50.4 to 49, you know, in favor of the Democrat. The system worked perfectly because it, in fact, reflected. The preferences, if you had asked people, do you prefer Republican or Democrat, a majority would have said Democrat. This resulted in the Democrat winning. But here's the caveat. So many people who supported ranked choice voting really did not understand what it really did, what it really meant. And in Ann Arbor, this worked perfectly, but people were so uh, shocked that a candidate who got 49% versus a candidate who got 40% in terms of first choice vote, there must be something wrong here. And uh, a couple of years later, they repealed it, and they repealed it in the election year when, in fact, student turnout was very low and enthusiasm for ranked choice voting was not as high as it had been initially. So uh, I think this has some lessons, and I think it reflects what Colin and, and Amelia said. You really want to talk about this in terms of the benefits that it brings for the individual voters, for the political system, for the range of choices, for the style of campaigns, and all of that. And also, as I think Amelia said, it's really an instant runoff. You know, we actually have a couple of states in the United States, I think it's Louisiana and Georgia, that uh, if no candidate gets a 50, 50% of the vote, they have a runoff election. They have it after November 3rd. Uh, and uh, in one sense, you could say, well, that becomes a high visibility election, but in fact, it's typically a lower turnout election unless control of the U.S. Senate depends upon it or whatever, but, uh, it's an expense. It really is another election. It keeps the election season going. It delays in those states, the whole notion of bringing people back together to think about how do we move ahead together to advance the interests of the state or whatever. So the instant runoff aspect of, I think, uh, uh, ranked choice voting is something to really be valued.
0: No, it's interesting. The Ann Arbor example to me suggests you know there are two different ways you can look at what happens with ranked choice voting. One way is if you're thinking of it like a party operative who's trying to get your candidate across the finish line. You know It's infuriating that you can't split the vote as a strategy <laughs> because <laughs> vote splitting becomes impossible. On the other hand, If you think about what happened in 2000, where a lot of people were very upset at at the notion that the votes that went to Ralph Nader in Florida, had they been divided between George W. Bush and Al Gore, would have almost certainly given the state and the presidency to Al Gore. Or, conversely, in 2016, a lot of people believed that Jill Stein's vote in the crucial upper Midwest states, especially Wisconsin, um, potentially made the difference between uh, a, a Trump state and, and a Hillary Clinton state. So, you know, there are two different ways of looking at it. Um, yeah. You know, you, Ohio is, you know, since 2004, when it was the pivotal state on which the presidential election rested, Ohio has been, you know, very much under the microscope of, of presidential candidates. And um, Tom, I want to turn to you because you and Herb together helped conduct a survey of, of those crucial states, Wisconsin. Uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Ohio, and and Michigan, to sort of see what public sentiment was about the possibility of ranked choice voting. And from what I saw of the results, it was very interesting because the knee-jerk reaction was, don't know what that is, doesn't sound like a good idea, we don't like changes. But when the questions got a little deeper and asked about, you know, would you like to have the ability to do this and that with certain kinds of political choices, suddenly the the responses warmed up quite a bit. Can you talk us through what you found and what you make of your findings?
4: Sure, Andrew. Uh, This was part of a poll that we've been conducting all year of those four states that you mentioned, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio, we call it the Great Lakes Poll. This is the Baltimore University Community Research Institute. Uh, And we were asked by Fairvote to add some questions uh, related to ranked choice voting. We had done so in January for this group that had informally gathered and then we did so again in the September poll, and I'm just going to focus on the Ohio results, but understanding that generally all four states had pretty similar results in the answers to the questions. And we, said, we saw exactly what you just described, that when first asked how familiar are you with ranked choice voting, only 10% were very familiar, about 27% somewhat familiar, and 62% not familiar at all. So that's a pretty substantial number that had no familiarity at all with ranked choice voting. And that was with a very brief explanation of how this works. A more detailed explanation that included arguments in favor and opposed showed when asked the, are you more likely or less likely to support ranked choice voting? We saw the more likely number at 23% and the less likely the same at 23%, did not change my opinion, went to 54%. So even in those two questions, you see a dropping of that, no familiarity from really 62 to 54, and a split on more or less likely to support. We then asked very specifically about presidential primaries. Uh, And so The question asked about looking at the 2016 and 2020 primaries, we're on the Republican side, then the Democratic side, we had many, many candidates. Did you think that this might work, particularly if you early voted in a primary and then your candidate dropped out and basically then your vote didn't count for anything by the time those primary votes are counted? When asked that question, 44% of the respondents said they would like to indicate first choice and backup choices, essentially a ranked choice voting system. 56% said, no, they only want to choose one candidate and that candidate wins or loses regardless. So now you see that number going up to about 44%, at least in the application to presidential primaries. Um, Then when asked, would you prefer to have two candidates to choose from or would you prefer to have more than two candidates to choose from, again, referring to the option that ranked choice voting presents. They split 50-50. 50% 50 prefer more than two choices. 50% said, no, two candidates is enough. So you see the trend line as they started thinking more about the system, the trend line is upwards in favor of giving it consideration. Then we asked an applied question. In which kinds of races do you think that ranked choice voting would be useful? And that was the term, useful or not useful. 71% said useful in presidential primaries. 68% useful in state or congressional primaries, 61% in local races, mayoral and city council, and as alluded to earlier, those tend to be the places where we see most frequently the use of ranked choice voting, partly because many communities also are nonpartisan, they don't vote by party. And then a split, uh, 57% both said presidential general elections and 57% congressional general elections. So just in the space of a few questions, we go from 10% familiarity over 60% not familiar at all to 57%, the low number, supporting this as useful in presidential and congressional general elections and much higher for primaries. Finally, the last question was, do you feel like your voice would would be represented and heard in a ranked choice voting system? Um, 60% said yes, whereas 40% said no, either I get my choice or no choice. So a lot of this really tells you that voter education is essential And quite frankly, to get the system in place, it's going to be education for a lot of political leaders. And it's been discussed and will continue to discuss Um, parties need to see an advantage. But if both parties see options that this system opens up, particularly responding to that issue of more and more voters, more and more residents and citizens are saying the two party system is part of our problem. We want to see that we can have other options. And I think this shows that ranked choice voting helped open up those options that people want to
0: see. Well, one instance of the system not working terribly well that I think voters of both parties have seen in the last few cycles. In 2016, you had a very crowded Republican presidential primary field. And, you know, in certain states, some candidates had dropped out, you know, between the time that people thought about who they wanted to support or even cast their ballot early and the time that the primary came around in 2020, it was the same thing. But on the Democratic side, especially when there was that you know, massive clearing out of the field just before, or um, well, just after the South Carolina primary, when um, you know I live in California, a lot of people felt very frustrated that they voted for a candidate who was no longer running. Um, so I want to ask, you know, come back to Carla and say, is that frustration on the voters an opening for you to advertise the benefits of ranked choice voting? Because obviously. If you're in a primary and you voted for Elizabeth Warren as your first choice and she's no longer a candidate then you don't have to worry because then you know you can go the 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 vote will then be cast for the next candidate on the list who's still running is tell me if that if that's and, and specifically with Maine because they're already enacting it was that something that you know you could see a clear difference between Maine voters and voters elsewhere that had this frustration
1: I think what exactly, I think you see, as you you allude to, Andrew, the millions upon millions of voters who, though they cast a vote, their power of their vote was reduced because their candidate by that time, uh, their primary came up, uh, uh, was, uh, had dropped out, you know, and, and you've seen this over the years and the, what it resulted in is a rush to move your primary up, uh, you know, from small Tuesday becoming super Tuesday and everyone racing to move the primary up so that in a sense for um, for states and parties that their that their importance in the primary process is, ele- you know, it's, it's elevated. But what it has done has uh, to some degree as those candidates with the most sort of resources uh, and the ability to campaign, particularly think of television, radio and multimedia, uh, to campaign in multiple states at the same time it's giving an a bit of an undue advantage to, to them where, as you said, we see this is an ability both for, both you think about the Republican field in 2016 and the Democratic field in 2020, examples of how ranked choice voting can help solve part of that problem. One, the two problems. One, that your state is less relevant because you've, now you've got to move your, 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 uh, your primary up to become more ve- relevant. And for voters uh, that the power of their vote is sort of uh, is decreased because potentially, potentially like your first choice candidate in this sense we have, you have just vote for one has, has already dropped out and then you don't have an opportunity to weigh in on the existing field uh, when it comes to your state. So we definitely see that as, 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 uh, as an opening. In fact, in 2020, um, five states, we work with five states who use ranked choice voting uh, for their, uh, on the Democratic side for their, for their presidential process, uh, Alaska, Wyoming, Kansas City, Hawaii, Nevada, all use ranked choice voting in terms of picking uh, who the winner would be uh, in, in their state. And I think if you look at and, you know, after this election, both parties will go back and look how their primaries are run and think of fixes. But if you look at the states that used ranked choice voting, at least on the Democratic side, they had less problems and less issues uh, than states that didn't use ranked choice voting, Iowa being a prime example. So in a
0: few moments, we're gonna turn to your questions. I just wanted to interject for a moment. So if you have any for our panelists, do please text them, let me give you that number again, 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet them to at the City Club and we'll try and work them in. Um, One of the things-
2: So I wanted to kind of- I wanted to kind of address this issue of people dropping out on- On the election administrator side, this can be a big issue. We have to send overseas and military members their ballots 45 days before the election. That's a federal statute. Department of Defense and Department of Justice have are very strict on that rule. So when we're sending a ballot out to our military members 45 days before the election and half the candidates are dropping out with it, you know, after they've returned their ballots, that's really disenfranchising our men and women serving our country overseas. On top of that, I'm a vote by mail county. Utah's a vote by mail state. We mail ballots out 21 days before the election, which means, once again, that these ballots are out and people are voting and they're coming in. And, and this is not just um, this is not just, you know, 10 percent of the vote that's absentee ballot. We send out all of it and 90 percent of our voters vote by mail. And um, and so that becomes an issue as these voters start to drop out. On top of that, even if you're voting at the polling location on election day, we've already certified our ballots weeks ahead of time. So anyone who drops out, even if you're waiting till election day to vote, you're still getting a paper ballot that have people on it who have dropped out of the race, sometimes 24 hours before you're voting in a presidential primary. And so it's, even through the whole process, it's really difficult for election administrators. I'm going to give you a perfect example. One of our cities that used ranked choice voting, we get an email from the city recorder and they said, this gentleman has dropped out of the race, but I don't have an email from him. I don't have a certified letter from him. I have no documentation that he has dropped out of the race with the exception of an email from a recorder who says, well, he told me he is, but I have to have documentation. I can't pull him off the ballot. We were literally 24 hours from our print deadline to print our ballot. So she's telling me to pull this person off. I have no official documentation. If this guy changes his mind and he hasn't filled out the right forms and I pull him off the ballot, that's a lawsuit for me. And so we were really, um, we were up against a deadline and I finally said, well, what city is this? And they said, it's Payson. It was like, so what's the problem? It's ranked choice voting in Payson. If he gets left on the ballot and people vote for him, it doesn't matter. It'll just go to their next choice. It was fantastic. I mean, we're literally on the phone with our printer trying to decide, can we get this designed fast enough? Is this going to work? Is this going to push our deadlines back? Or are we going to miss our, our print window? Oh, it's Payson. They're doing ranked choice voting. Just print the ballot. It'll be fine. If he ends up dropping out, great. If he ends up not, it doesn't matter. It's a I love
0: this. Right? Um, in part because I think what it illustrates is that there is a learning process, right, with, with, with ranked choice voting. And just to come back to some of the findings that, that, that Tom uh, reported from, from those four Midwestern states, um, it seems as a process of getting people's heads around the idea of how this works is like, wait, I have my first choice, and then if that first choice candidate doesn't come in the top two, then the second one comes up, how is that gonna work, and who's counting it, and how can we try, you know, there's all this sort of cloud of confusion. Um, but my understanding is that where ranked choice voting has been enacted, and people get their head around what it is and they see it in action, that quite quickly there's there's a there's a change of heart. And Emilia, I'd love it if you could address that. You know, have, you've just given us a wonderful story about how even the election officials were confused about ranked choice voting and what that means for this tricky issue of, of candidates dropping out or not dropping out. But what about on the other side, the sort of, you know, is there like a light bulb that just flashes in people's heads, you know, voters and administrators both of them say, oh, this is actually really easy. And can you describe what what that's like?
2: Yeah. You know, a good example is what we used for the uh, because of COVID, the, the county conventions and the state conventions for the political parties had to become virtual. And when you're doing it virtually, uh, it's hard to keep people. On a Zoom call for 12 hours, right? And so doing rounds and rounds of voting didn't make sense. And I saw a lot of people who actively criticize ranked choice voting when I was doing it for these city elections because they're maybe a little afraid of it, especially in Utah, because most of the people who do ranked choice voting are very left-leaning or blue states. They they think that this is a left-leaning or blue issue. And and I, I mean, I'm completely understandable. I went to a fair vote event in November of 2019 and I felt like I was in hostile territory. It was a whole sea of Democrats and I'm the lone Republican up there getting uh, getting the champion of democracy award. And it was kind of funny, but I, I see that with the voters. They say, well, this is, a, this is a liberal left issue. Why do you support this? And I explained to them, no, no, it's not until they saw it in action at the convention. And they said, you know what? That was a lot easier. Uh, We we didn't take nearly as much time. I was able to get to know all the candidates. I just ranked them in my order and then our our results come out. And a lot of people say, oh, my goodness, uh, that was way easier. I fully support this. And once they've seen it, once they maybe don't have those fears, we fear the unknown. Right. And once it becomes known and there's no fear, I think they really don't push against it so much.
0: So, Khaled, I think you had something you wanted to add to that. What, what, what is your thought?
1: Um, well, Amelia, you're you are among a friendly crowd here, so don't feel uh, that, that you're uh, somewhat segregated in that sense. Uh, you know, she gave, again, I just want to point out that perfect example from Pace in Utah about seeing how ranked choice voting is, is, it's not partisan, it's technocratic, let's think about it. It's problem solving, uh, both and helping solve problems for voters, uh, and for election administrators. But she talked about Utah, a Republican state uh, that used it. You know, it, This is not a democratic issue. Republicans picked uh, who their attorney general was gonna be represent them uh, in general election in Indiana. Um, in Virginia, they've used it to pick some of the, their congressional candidates within their convention. It is, as she said, it, it is um, better, faster, and cheaper.
2: Let me come back to
0: Ohio for a moment and I want to come to the first of the questions from, from our audience. Um, you know, picking up on this question of, you know, suspicion of, you know, is this a left wing thing? Is this a right wing thing? Um, you know, many states around the country have seen discussion of new ways of thinking about voting and have had a reason to be suspicious of it. You know, one very good example, which has come from the Republicans, is, is the notion of voter ID. Um, that you know, it's presented as this common sense approach to making sure that there's no fraud of the ballot box. Um, but when you look more closely, um, there's grounds to question you know, the sincerity of that and whether it's not, in fact, a, a mechanism for voter suppression. And I think the, the debate in and of itself generates this mistrust of the system, the idea that the guardians of our electoral system do not have the voters' best interests at heart. So that you have, if you want to introduce a reform, even a good reform, there is that inherent suspicion to overcome, and then there's also the mechanics of it. You know, how do you introduce a change like this in Ohio? Do you uh, do you do it on a local level? Do you get the legislature to do something? Do you have a ballot initiative and air the ideas and get voters to decide? Um, Herb, let me turn to you. You know, if you're If you were to devise a strategy for introducing Ohio to ranked-choice voting, what mechanism would you think would be most promising to to get it rolling and get people to accept it and trust it?
3: Yeah, let me first say what I would not do, and I would not allow the conversation about the benefits of ranked-choice voting be linked too closely to presidential primaries and presidential general elections because that brings in so many other issues that already have been tainted, whether it's issues about the Electoral College or voter suppression or whatever. So I wouldn't try to go, you know, talk about it. And, of course, once we get past 2020, you know, we're not, we don't have another presidential cycle until four years. But, but I think what you said, Andrew, I, I think you, you, you would really love to have it. And, and Faribault does this. If you could have some successes – at the state and county and local levels in multiple states, where you now can point and say, Utah has it, Maine has it, some cities in Ohio might, you know, might have it or whatever, and used to have it. Then all of a sudden it becomes something that's not this uh, frightening thing. It's not owned by one party or the other or one ideological group or another. So what I would hope you could do here in Ohio is you first could have the conversation with, in fact, uh, the various interested parties, not only the state legislature and the governor, but also the municipal league, and all of the the township organizations, try to get all of them educated about this and see what kind of interest there might be and see if there's some way to put together a coalition. Having done all that work, and it could probably take a year or two or more or whatever, and if you th- it looks like things are sort of uh, dead in the legislature or uh, people are afraid uh, to tackle it, then I'd say, well, let's, let's think about a ballot initiative. Uh, and, uh, but that ballot initiative would, again, be done not in a partisan context, ideally, but here's how we can improve governance in Ohio at all levels, and everybody has had a chance to weigh in and then we'll see. And Ohio you know, is a difficult nut to crack at the state level. Uh, some of us were talking the other day about how long it took to get redistricting done. And uh, But I would certainly start it that way and try to make it the least partisan. If the legislature, obviously, co-sponsors from reputable members of both parties, getting the governor's endorsement and the secretary of state's endorsement saying, no, this is not anything, there's no hidden agenda here except Good government and being more responsive to the needs of the citizens.
0: Carl, is, is there a blueprint for rolling out ranked choice voting in a state? And you know, is what Herb is suggesting Ohio is that something that, that is in line with how Fair Vote would recommend going about it?
1: Well, I think each state is unique. Um, the politics of the state is unique. Some of the reasons why rank choice voting might be appealing both to people in the legislature. Or those uh, uh, voters is going to be unique. So each state and those activists in those states and advocates should be thinking about how to make this work in, in my state. Like like many issues, but I think what her was you know alluding to and Amelia talked about. This is no longer a thought experiment. Uh, you know that is for um, you know public policy. You know nerds or, uh, or those who are who talk about civics. Uh, this is actually real. Uh, in the last decade. Um, the states that uh, should say locales that have used are starting to use implement ranked choice voting has more than doubled, uh, and these are places as diverse both geographically and some sociologically, from California to Maine, to New Mexico to uh, to, to Minnesota. Uh, as I said, from New York City to to Arden, Delaware, um, are going to be using ranked choice voting. Um, and even right now, it's on the ballot in five cities, in two states, and those states are, you know, we, we talk about Massachusetts, and you know, sort of everyone still thinks of Massachusetts, and in some degree is of um, very liberal uh, as a state. But it's on the ballot in Alaska as well, which is far, you know, uh, you know, politically away from both geographically and politically, sort of different perception-wise than Massachusetts. So again this is no longer a thought experiment you're seeing it around the country both in democratic locales democratic states purple blue states as you say and in red states like utah and you're and i'm so glad that amelia is here to talk about like it's in use it's solving problems and it's making elections you know you know better faster and cheaper
0: so amelia let me ask you you know Is what Khaled says about all the benefits of ranked choice voting, is that reflected in voter sentiment after going through the experience of using
3: it?
2: Yeah, I think uh, Tom really well pointed out that people, the more they know about it, the more they warm up to the idea. So one of the things that we decided to do is after, so our our use of ranked choice voting is a pilot. Uh, It's a pilot for cities that they can use. And so I wanted to give the legislature who approved that pilot as much information as possible so that they can decide whether to make this the law moving forward. And we sent a survey to every voter who voted in the ranked choice voting election that we had an email for and we had a 10 percent response rate. So from a blind survey, a 10 percent response rate is pretty high. And it is a statistically valid sample of the people. And what we found is that after having used ranked choice voting, Eighty three percent of the people said they wanted to either continue using it for their city elections or expand it for partisan elections as well. Um, We and we did a lot of statistical things Uh, as far as what we call spoiled ballots in the election industry. These are people that maybe filled out their ballot incorrectly. And so we couldn't count a vote. We did not have a statistically higher amount of spoiled ballots. So what we discovered is the same people that have a hard time filling out a regular ballot also have a hard time filling out a ranked choice voting ballot. But the people who can figure out how to fill out their regular traditional ballot can also fill out correctly their ranked choice voting ballot. Ballot. And so statistically, we didn't have more spoiled ballots. We didn't have more voter confusion. And after having used it, over 80% of the people wanted to continue or expand its use. That's great. I, uh,
0: Herb,
3: it sounds like you want to say something. I wanted to ask Amelia did you have any examples uh, in which the candidate who had the most? most first place choices did not win the election. so
2: we didn't have an example of that but one of the things that we did have uh, we had an, we had a race in one of our cities where there was a, a first po- a first place person but they didn't get 50 percent a second place person and then a third place person the third place person when they were eliminated almost all of their votes like almost all went to that first place person. And what it showed this second place person is that it was that was a woman. It was her ideology. Mm. She has her crowd, and that's it. Yep. And that everybody else likes the ideology of these two because they had a more similar ideology, and that's that was a, really a, interesting to her. Yeah. Yep. Yep.
1: I just wanted to
4: make two quick points. Um, one of them is that when we think about people who get into politics, and then for some it becomes a longer term commitment. Often that happens at the local level. So one of the benefits I think of this system is that you encourage more people to think about getting involved, uh, running for city council, running for mayor, particularly in smaller communities. Um, The nonpartisan nature of many of the communities in Ohio also opens up that because it moves it away from it being a party situation and more towards simply people who uh, wanna run for office and wanna give that a try. Secondly, we're seeing more and more people who these days, particularly younger generations, identify as independent. They don't see themselves as a party. They don't want to see themselves as a party. They want to vote for the candidate. This system encourages voting for the candidate. And then finally, I would say that a state might want to, like Ohio, might want to consider not just the local level, but over time, after it's been tried and to do some polling on it, uh, state-level offices. So not just statewide, but also the state legislature particularly because the trends in America, Ohio is no different, are sorting. We are sorting ourselves increasingly into urban, suburban, and rural communities. And so we are becoming more and more alike, and that's reflected in our voting. This might create at least more of a pragmatic approach as opposed to ideological approaches to who we vote for, who runs, and what we do. I want to
0: address ideology. this point so, of you know pragmatism over ideology because there's a terrific question that came in that I think really gets to the heart of this. Um so you know the the question says, you know, what you're talking about is trying to create more of a consensus political environment, Maybe get back to the notion of big tent parties that are less ideological, more interested in governing. Um, but what if the parties don't want to be big tents? What if the voters for those parties don't want big tents? We've seen a movement in both parties, you know, towards the towards the left and, and, and right wing edges of those parties recently. And it seems to me there are two different ways you could look at that you could say the system has created that um and that if you had ranked choice voting we'd get back to a place the more voters were comfortable with or you could argue no this is what voters and parties want and that actually ranked choice voting under the guise of being a neutral technocratic solution is actually a highly ide- ideological one in and of itself um i'm sure you all have thoughts on that um who wants to chime in first
3: well
4: I'll say real quick, uh, sorry to to cut in, but just um, look at the percentage turnout in primaries, in local races, and in presidential and midterm elections. The percentages are lowest in local elections, next lowest in primaries. They go up to about 40% in midterm elections and get 50, 60% in the presidentials. So that right there tells you that we're not talking about what voters want in their parties.
3: We are seeing a small sliver of people who actively participate in primaries yeah th- Andrew, I think you have to look at different scenarios. So imagine it's a partisan election, and the democratic candidate emerging from the primary system is a very, very, very far left candidate, and the Republican candidate is a far right candidate. And so that's actually now a wonderful setting for, in fact, another person to run, recognizing there might be a group of voters who, have, who are not represented by these two. But still, that person probably is at a disadvantage because the election laws and the party label still are so powerful. So what happens in a circumstance like that? And my guess is that that will actually lead the Democratic and the Republican candidate to say, well, I'm not gonna get a majority of the votes. I'm probably going to need some second place uh, the votes from this third candidate, or whatever. And perhaps that might have a tempering effect in this, situ- in this particular situation. You know, I can imagine other situations where it will work opposite, but I think more often than not, a, a savvy third candidate, or fourth candidate for that matter, could actually have some impact on how, in fact, uh, the Republican and Democrat campaigns. You know,
0: let me 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 just frame the question for you this way, which is, you mm -hmm. know, if people make this objection to you and just say, you know, we don't want big tents, you know, you're trying to push politics back to the center. We're not interested in centrist politics. What's your answer to that?
1: Well, sort of my culture, you know, you heard the phrase, don't hate the player, just hate the game. Uh, And the game in this sense is the system and the system, the way it is constructed is is in a sense uh, rigged against reform, in terms of reform, uh, our democracy, and then diversifying uh, uh, who is represented. And as Amelia talked about, who's actually elected, who's engaging in in the process. So in this sense of thinking about, you know, Herb talked about the ideological right and left, I think for both parties, this is something that they would want. I think for, I I would say that uh, for Democrats, they see, uh, look at in the presidential Bernie Sanders or others, Liz Warren, others in the tickets, they see themselves uh, progressive splitting their votes among many candidates across, and the feeling is they may have gotten a more moderate candidate than what they feel is uh, their policies uh, want to move forward. On the Republican side, you've seen uh, um, uh, more of the far right of the party. Uh, some might even say the QAnon part of the party, reflecting themselves now, sort of take control of the party, and those who want to be more pragmatic in their sense, find themselves splitting their votes among many different candidates and that sliver of the party or those candidates who are are addressing that sliver of the party are the ones are are getting elected. I think ranked choice voting makes the system, the bigger system and democracy, small d would say, um, uh, more reflective, more diverse, more powerful and more engaging uh, for individuals uh more invigorating for parties as they grow and have to adapt to the people and as tom said and others have noted the country is changing uh and uh those that both age wise and demographic wise want something different and the parties um at some point will have to reckon with this issue and ad- adapt it you see the republican party doing it to some degree within their party structure You know, we've been talking to folks in the Democratic Party of how they can use this both within the primary system, within their caucus. So you're seeing it slowly sort of happening and you'll find it's happening in small jurisdictions, perhaps in Ohio, coming fairly soon. And you'll see it on on the larger stage in Congress.
0: Great. Amelia, I just want to give you the final word as you're the one who works, you know, at the coalface of running elections um, you know, if you had to advise Ohio on, on how to do this based on your experience, what what would you tell Ohioans and Ohio, Ohioan officials?
2: Yeah. So, if you want to implement ranked choice voting, uh, you have to get through the legislature because law, election law, is governed mostly at the state level, and the legislature is a partisan body and they worry about change because everyone in that body was elected using the current way we we run elections. And so change to that scares them. That's why nonpartisan races, whether it be like a school board race or a city race, a municipal race, if they're not partisan, that's why it's a good place to start. Because the legislature is more willing to experiment with someone else's election (laughs) than they are with their own election. And so if you can start at the municipal nonpartisan level, then you're going to get more buy-in from the legislature who governs this process. And if you can do that, once people start using it, you're going to find results like we had in Vineyard and Payson, which by the way, the demographics Vineyard is young and millennial. They have a higher engagement on social media polls than they do their municipal elections because they're so millennial. And then Payson is very well-established farming community, more, uh, more probably, I would guess, baby boomer age. And both of them came back and said that they preferred it after they had used it. So if you let people use it in your nonpartisan races, they'll get used to it and they'll like it. And then, uh, and then you can start moving towards uh, having people who've used it and like it, then they start pushing their representatives to say, I want this. And, and that's Andrew, when they'll do it.
3: Andrew, and one other thing, Ohio is a somewhat unique state we have home rule provisions for our municipalities. The legislature has been riding rough shot over it lately, but in fact you uh, with respect to municipal election, you might not even have to go through the legislature. The cities might still be able to do it unless the legislature intervenes. but they right now they would have the power to actually adopt you know a different mechanism of voting.
2: Yeah, that's definitely where I would start.
3: yeah.
0: Very good. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there, unfortunately. But um, this has been a fascinating discussion. And I very much look forward to coming back to Ohio soon when we can all travel again safely and and see some of these reforms being enacted. So just to let you know, again, who we've been talking with today, uh, Dr. Herb Asher, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the Ohio State University, Carlo Pitts, Political and Public Relations Strategist at Fair Vote, uh, Amelia Powers Gardner, the Clerk Auditor for Utah County, and Dr. Tom Sutton, professor of political science and director at Baldwin Wallace University. I'd like to thank, um, I, I need to also read out a few thanks to, to our sponsors for the support of Fair Vote, the League of Women Voters of Greater Cleveland, the Ranked Choice Voting uh, Resource Center, all who served as community partners on today's forum. All City Club virtual forums are sponsored by Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gund Foundation, Key Bank, Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on their website at cityclub.org. Thank you all. You can join them in supporting this work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. Again, I'm Andrew Gumble. Thank you very much for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned.